Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 15. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. Well, thank you very much for that reading, Joyce. And uh, good morning, everybody. It'd be great to have that passage open, and uh, you'll find an outline um, of the talk in the inside of the notice sheet. I think I'm uh, probably not saying anything surprising when I say that the most liberating truth about the Christian life is that our sins have been forgiven. And as Simon has already reminded us this morning, the Bible is full of wonder about this fact and uses many different ideas and images to get across. Let me just mention a few of them. In Isaiah 38, for example, King Hezekiah 
having had his sin brought to his attention, says that God has put all our sins behind his back so he doesn't have to see them anymore. What an image that is. In Romans 4, using a financial metaphor, Paul says God no longer counts our sins against us. God is like a very generous bank manager who just wipes away our debt. I said these were images. This is not real. This is a metaphor. In Psalm 103, verse 12, God says he has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, as far as you can imagine. In Isaiah 1.18, God says he's going to wash our sins. He's, he's like a washerwoman. He's in the tub with his hands and the soap suds. He says he's going to wash our sins until they are as white as snow. In Isaiah 44, verse 22, God says he has swept our offenses away like a cloud, and they just disappear like the morning mist when the sun hits it. In Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says he's going to blot out our transgressions and he will choose never to remember them again. He'll just forget. In Micah 7, God says he's going to hurl our sins into the sea and they're going to sink like a stone and disappear from view forever. In Psalm 51, reflecting on the events that we've been thinking about in this part of 2 Samuel, David says that God has washed away his sins, so he is completely clean. And in Colossians 2.14, we read that God has nailed our sins to the cross. Not only has he paid the debt, but he has destroyed the evidence that we have any debt at all. And we could go on to talk about great Bible events like the Passover, <clears throat> the Day of Atonement, the building of the temple. We could look at parables in the New Testament which talk of huge debts being written off, financial arguments in which a ransom is paid for free, legal arguments in which penalties are served by someone other than the guilty party, apocalyptic images like the lamb slain for filthy and stained people who now stand in white, clean linen, washed in the Lamb's own blood. It seems that everywhere you look in the Bible, from the moment God gives animal coverings to hide Adam and Eve's nakedness, right to the end of the Bible where the Lamb comes to collect his clean, holy bride, running through the Bible, like the word Blackpool in a stick of rock, is the forgiveness of sins. No wonder David says in Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Now, if we have any concept of the depth of our sin, if we have any sense of just how stained and damaged our guilt has made us in God's sight, what we should be saying, as I've Read, read those references and mention those images, what we should be saying is, how is that possible? What does God do with all of that sin? Where does it go? Does God just say, whatever? Does he look at our lives and the way we've dishonored him and the damage we've done to others and say, actually, in the end, it doesn't matter? 
Does he look at the injustice of the, of the world and the cruelty the human race inflicts on each other and say, well, it's okay, I can overlook that? I mean, just think about it. If someone has torn your life apart, if someone has damaged you in heart or mind or body, do you think it would be all right for God to say, whatever, I'm cool with that, it doesn't matter in the end? Is it okay for God to look at a rapist or a child abuser and say, no worries? Is it okay for him to look at someone like David, an adulterer and murderer, and say it doesn't matter? Can God look at us and say, it's okay when it's not? Does he justify us without being just himself? I think even from our own flawed perspective, we can see the injustice of that, can't we? We can see how appalling it would be to have a God like that, who just looked at sin and damage and harm and said, whatever. That would be a scandal. So what does God do with all that sin? How does he throw it into the sea? How does he put it behind his back so he can no longer see it? How does he wash it whiter than snow? How does he cancel the debt without himself failing to be just? How does he do it? Well, the astonishing answer that the Bible gives and that we've been singing about this morning is that all of that sin is brought to one place. All of it is laid upon God's sinless Son, Jesus Christ. All of those images and promises actually lead up to a moment in time when God's sinless Son, the one with whom God is pleased dies on the cross for the sake of those who have displeased God. See, all of those images and metaphors mean nothing until the objective flesh and blood reality of Jesus dying on the cross happens. Because when he dies, he is taking the penalty that we deserved so we don't have to. The innocent stands in for the guilty. The sinless one faces the wrath of God for the sinful many. He gets the death we deserve, so we get the life he deserved. That's how he does it. That's how he covers our sin. That's how he puts it behind his back. That's how he manages to forget them. That's how he washes them whiter than snow. That's how he makes them disappear like the morning mist. That's how he pays the debt. That's how he throws it into the depths of the sea. These are not just metaphors to make us feel forgiven. They are metaphors that come to be understood only when you see the cross of Christ and what Jesus has achieved. Our sins are nailed to the cross because Jesus is nailed to the cross. And so when God looks at our sin, he does not say, whatever. Forgiveness costs him his son. And so the most liberating truth about the Christian life is that our sins have been forgiven. It's not just a nice idea. They have been forgiven. 
because God has dealt with them justly in Jesus' death on a cross. Now let me say, if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope that what I've just said has given you some insight into what makes Christians tick. And if you're new to us as a church, or new-ish, then you'll know now what we are on about. This is what we're on about. This is what we love to sing about. This is what fills us with amazement week after week after week. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy are more. Why do we never get bored of singing about that? And if you're a Christian this morning, I don't think I've said anything new so far. This is in the category of things you already know. But sometimes coming to see the truth and grasp it and enjoy it wholeheartedly can actually be a painful and difficult journey. Sometimes we simply don't grasp how serious our sin is, and so we take forgiveness as a right. Do you remember the German poet, Heinrich Heine, who said, of course God will forgive me, it's his job. And we can be like that too. Alternatively, sometimes actually we cannot believe it's true because we see our sin so much that when we think about ourselves, this is all we think of, it's all we see. How can God possibly forget my sin when I can't forget it? Or because some of the consequences of our sin continue even after we've been forgiven and therefore we doubt that we've been forgiven. Grasping forgiveness and enjoying it to the full can be a hard and painful journey. Well, this is the case for King David in 2 Samuel 12. So let's look at the first half of that chapter now, the second half next week. And the first half, we're going to look at it under the three headings you'll see on the sheet, beginning by exposed by the Word of God in 1 to 7. The chapter opens with a very important event. Whenever you see a prophet go to a king in the Old Testament, you know something is up. Here is, as we say today, truth speaking to power. Verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now these opening words remind us of the situation so far and what is at stake at this point in the Bible. The situation by the end of chapter 11 is this. David, king of Israel, the one chosen by God to rule the world with righteousness and bring about God's eternal kingdom, is on view. And we've seen that this is an opportunity, not just for David, not just for Israel, but for the human race. It's kind of a second chance for humanity. So Adam and Eve failed to rule God's world in righteousness David is now kind of given a second chance. And as we've been working our way through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, we're looking at that second chance, and we're looking in and seeing, is this second chance for humanity going to amount to anything at all? And it all seems to depend on David. And at this point, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, we see David has failed catastrophically. Adam and Eve took the fruit 
David took someone's wife. It's the same thing, in essence. Instead of using his power and position to bring blessing and righteousness and justice to the world, he has used those things to pursue his own selfish ends, to commit adultery, to carry out murder, and to cover up his sin. So what is at stake is more than a personal matter for David. The future of the kingdom of God and therefore the future of humanity is at stake at this point in the Bible story. Now look at verse 1 and you'll see a key word that we've been seeing that the narrator has used to express power in this story, the word send. David, all-powerful, has been sending you may remember in chapter 11, the whole thing just occurs around, a, around his house. He never goes out of his house. He just sends. He sends servants, messengers, letters to carry out his will. But all the time he's forgotten the one who really has power, the one to whom he's accountable. He's forgotten the Lord. But God has seen it all. And now it is God who does the sending. And God, in his kindness, sends the prophet Nathan to speak a word to David. And it begins, remarkably, <clears throat> with a little story about a lamb. Let's look at it again. When he came to him, he said there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, this little parable that Nathan tells David is simple and powerful. There were two men who lived in the same town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man does not take long to describe, like a lot of rich men in Bible stories. The only detail that really matters is his wealth, his economic status, described in terms of the vast numbers of livestock he owns, a vast number of sheep and cattle. We're not told how he acquired this wealth. Just notice we're told that he had it. He just had it. And we're to imagine that in having all that wealth, he has everything else he needs as well. Now, the prophet's interest lies much more with the poor man whose domestic situation he takes time to sketch clearly and vividly. In contrast to the rich man who has everything, the poor man has nothing apart from this one little female lamb. And yet notice that despite this lack, his home life is rich in relationships and kindness. This lamb, which notice he had bought rather than simply had, is the only thing he owns, but it's the center of his world. It brings him great joy and happiness, presumably more than all the other livestock of the rich man combined. This one precious lamb, slightly surprisingly perhaps, shares his home and his life. The man shares his food with the lamb. He drinks from his cup. He even lies in his arms as treasured and safe as a daughter. Have we got the picture? Now, we might be tempted to think this is a kind of a soft, sentimental picture. It's like one of those kind of pre-Raphaelite paintings or something you might imagine on a Christmas card or something like that. But actually, that's a huge mistake. This is piercingly sharp. This is a cleverly crafted prophetic word like a sword designed to strike right into the heart of David. 
Notice two or three details. Firstly, notice that the poor man's life is all about giving, not taking. The poor man gives his food, his drink, in affection. And this will be contrasted with somebody who takes. Secondly, the three verbs used in verse 3 to describe the poor man's kindness to the lamb, eat, drink, and lie, you may remember the exact same three verbs that have been used in 11 verse 11 by Uriah the Hittite to describe the luxuries of home life that he refused to indulge in when David was forcing him to go home and cover up his sin. Thirdly, the phrase sleeping in his arms used to describe the lovely intimacy between the man and the lamb will in verse 8 be used to describe the sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. Clearly, there is more to this little parable than a nice picture. But David has not yet made any of those connections. He is simply listening to a story about two strangers. And so now we come to the crunch, verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking his one, one of his sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Suddenly, this beautiful scene descends into something of a horror story. The rich man needs something for dinner. He has plenty of flocks and herds. He has the power, really, that we only now have with Deliveroo. You know, get on your phone. A few minutes later, a paper bag arrives on the doorstep. I've never actually tried it, but I watch people. He could have sent out for a Deliveroo. Hundreds, thousands of animals. Double Big Mac, that, that looks fantastic, doesn't it? But he refrained from doing so. Literally, the word used there is pity. He thought it would be a pity to use his own. And so he took from the poor man. And now we see even more connections. Because that word take, you may remember is a big word in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. It's the word that Samuel, the previous prophet, had used to warn Israel that this is what their kings will do. You want a king? Fine. He's going to take. It's the same word that the narrator has used in 11 verse 4 of David, taking Bathsheba. It's the same word I've mentioned a couple of times, that Eve took the fruit in the garden in Genesis 3.6, the fruit she was not meant to take. This word is a greedy word. It's a word for taking what is not yours. And in his greed, the man took what was not his and treated it as if it were his own. In his selfishness, he took the precious lamb who was like a daughter to the poor man. He had it killed and he ate it for dinner. Are you shocked? You're meant to be shocked by this tale of meanness and injustice. I wonder if David is picking up the connections. It doesn't seem that he is. But he is listening, and he responds to this tale of heartless, calculating greed and destruction. Look at his reaction, verse 5. 
David burned with anger and against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay four times for that lamb because he did such a thing and had no pity. There are a couple of surprises to notice about David's reaction. The first is the extent of his anger. David's response is immediate and visceral. He can see the injustice. It's terrible. He burns with righteous indignation against the man who has committed this sin against the poor man. But in pronouncing the death sentence, the death sentence, he goes too far. See, think about what has actually happened here. What has actually happened is just a single lamb has been stolen. And the law had a a solution to that. Which, as David rightly notes, is a four-time, a fourfold restitution for any theft of livestock. The man must pay four times for the lamb. That's right. But for some reason, David goes above and beyond the, the law, perhaps because of the particular pitilessness of the man's actions. He says, actually, actually, he doesn't just deserve a fourfold restitution, he deserves death. Perhaps David's being over the top here. Perhaps something about the parable has got under his skin. Or perhaps he has enough insight to see that no matter what the law said, someone who behaves like this did deserve to die. The second surprise is David's blindness to what Nathan is doing. See, by this time, I imagine we're about a year on from the original sin. Not the original sin in the garden, but the original sin in chapter 11. And I know that because... This is at least nine months afterwards because we're told that the son has been born already. And so imagine a period of nine months to a year, maybe a little bit longer, and David has had all this time to reflect and to stew on what has happened. He's had all that time to think about his greed, his covetousness, his selfishness, his theft. And in Psalm 32, he gives voice to this. He says, if you look on the screen, he says, When I kept silent during this time, and I think this psalm must have been written looking back on this time before Nathan came to him. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. This is David, the unforgiven one. And yet when he sees his own sins presented before him in such a graphic way, he cannot see them. He is so blinded by his own sin that he adds to his sin this breathtaking hypocrisy and pronounces a judgment on the man in Nathan's parable. Well, the words the prophet now speaks have got to be among the most memorable in the whole Bible. Two words in the Hebrew, four short words in English. No more stories, no more parables, no more finesse, I imagine he looks at David. Perhaps there is a finger pointed. Nathan said to David, verse 7, You are the man. You are the man. And with those words, David's world changes. It turns out that this little story is a mirror, another mirror, held up to David's face so he can see with the most brutal clarity his own sinfulness. And suddenly, everything makes sense. 
Now he knows the man whose pitiless crimes he has just pronounced the judgment of death upon is him. Now he knows the guilty party who has evoked such righteous indignation is him. Now he knows the rich man who stole the one precious thing the poor man owned is him. Now he knows the flocks and herds and possessions and wealth which had not been earned or bought but just given to him are his. Now he knows this poor man is Uriah, the lamb with Bathsheba. The taking and the killing of the lamb was a conflation of David's two crimes of adultery and murder that has brought this family unit to utter destruction. And so begins the most painful period of David's life. Looking back in Psalm 51, David will speak of this time as an experience of bone-crushing, heartbreaking pain and turmoil. Because, as we see in the next section, he is broken by the word of God. As the prophet continues, David learns firstly the true nature and then the consequences of his sin. Let's look at the nature of his sin in 7 to 9. In these verses, God speaks very personally to David. This is about God's relationship with David. And he does so in terms that are meant to take us back to chapter 7, where Nathan the prophet came to him and gave him these promises of a house, a dynasty, a kingdom that would last forever and bring blessing, just like the rich man in the parable. And then look at verse 9, where God asks him this, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? The prophet wants Nathan to see, David to see, that what he has done is personal against God. He has not just broken some Old Testament laws. He has despised the word of God. And in verse 10, that means he has despised God himself. This is very serious. That word despise has been used a few times in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, but only of God's enemies. It was used, you may remember, way back in chapter 1, uh, sorry, book 1, chapter 2 of the sons of Eli. It was used of Goliath, the Philistine, in 1 Samuel 17. And it was used of Michal, daughter of Saul, who despised David in her heart when he danced before the ark in 2 Samuel 6. And so now David has brought himself in alignment with the enemies of God. He didn't deliberately despise God in one sense when he looked at Bathsheba from his rooftop. But he made the decision to live as an enemy of God. He didn't actually shake his fists at God. He didn't become an atheist. He didn't have a great rant. He didn't sort of suddenly turn into Stephen Fry or Richard Dawkins and say, I hate you, God. But what he did quietly dethroned God in his heart. He despised God. And this is why when David looks back on this period in Psalm 51, this period, you'll remember, he has damaged human beings. Verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And it's because of this that God must act against sin and evil. God cannot simply say whatever. 
Because to do so would be to make the universe a place of appalling injustice. It would be for God to actually step down from his throne as God. And that would be hell. That would be worse than hell, if that were possible to imagine. A universe where justice is not finally done. And so when we read in the Bible that God punishes sin, we should rejoice that we live in a universe with a moral order that we cannot destroy. That God remains God. That good and evil must be immovable values. Students doing two ways to live. That is why we draw that picture in box two. God cannot let this continue. God must deal with sin. Because not to do so is for him to give up being God. But not only that, David must learn there are consequences for his sin. And he does that in verses 9 to 12. The judgment now falls into two parts, relating to the two parts of David's sin. And just as Joyce read it earlier, I'm going to take the punctuation a bit differently to the translation in front of us. First, God pronounces judgment on David's murder of Uriah. Verse 9, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. David killed Uriah with a sword by making sure he got killed by the Ammonites. David's punishment for this from God is one that matches the crime. The sword, that is violence, will never depart from his house. That is his family, his dynasty. And if you read on, as we will do in coming weeks, you'll see what this is going to be like. It's going to be horrific. David's son by Bathsheba will die. His daughter Tamar will be raped by her half-brother Amnon, who will be murdered in revenge by her brother Absalom, who will come to hate his own father and lead a rebellion under Athiphapel. I can't even pronounce that one. And later... Another son, Adonijah, will claim the throne and be killed by another son. It gets confusing because everybody's name begins with A at this point in the Bible story. But the big picture is chaos. Son usurping father, brother raping sister, brother killing brother in a long winding path of death and chaos. And this is the kingdom of God. Until one day the Babylonians come with their swords and kill the whole nation. And then God pronounces judgment about David's adultery. Pick it up halfway through verse 10. Because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah to Hittite to be your own, this is what the Lord says. Out of your household I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I'll take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Again, the punishment fits the crime. Just as David took Bathsheba from Uriah, so God will take David's wives. He'll give them to another, only this time it won't be in secret, as David was. And you need to read as far as chapter 16 to see how this happens. But the one close to David who's going to do this will be another one of his sons. Well, can you imagine how painful this was for David to hear? What a terrible judgment that he despised God and that many will suffer because of him. But let me ask you this. Do you imagine that David ever looked back 
and felt anything but gratitude for what the prophet Nathan said to him that day. Can you see how, although this was a very hard message to hear, it was incredibly kind? Can you see how much more terrible a judgment it would be to receive silence from God? How much better to have sin exposed now than on the day of judgment? How much kinder to hear a word of warning now than to not hear it? And to continue in blindness and sin, unforgiven and unforgiven unto eternity. How much better to hear the accusation of the prophet, you are the man, than to hear it from God on the last day. And so this is a reminder to us that we must be people who hear the word of God. And who do not harden our hearts to make sure we are sitting regularly under the word of God. To make sure we never turn away the loving friend who comes with a word of warning to us. Because it's incredible kindness to hear that word, to have the light of God's word shone in our hearts, however painful it must be. So we must turn back before it's too late. How thankful we should be that we do not hear God's silence. But before we see David's response, we need to remember again how much is at stake. Remember this is not just a story of human sinfulness, but the story of the sin of David, the king of Israel. And so what hangs in the balance is the whole future of the kingdom of God. This is humanity's second chance. Where Adam failed, David has now failed. And so what will happen to the promises of God? Well, let's look at the final section and see. Look with me at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Again, this is just two words to say in the Hebrew You are the man, two words. I have sinned against the Lord, two words. This is all that needs to be said. And then look at the reply. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. God's sharp word has pierced his heart. And David is saved. The promises are saved. The kingdom is saved. In the kindness and grace of God, the light has shone into the darkness. And David has turned back to the very one he has offended. The only one who can restore him. Can you imagine what it was like to hear those words? The Lord has taken away your sin. Have you ever seen anybody receive really wonderful news like that? You sort of see the shoulders collapse in relief. But of course, if we've understood something of the seriousness of sin, this actually is the most difficult part of the whole two chapters. Because here we come across the scandal of grace. That is, how can it be right for God to say that to David? How can God take away his sin? 
How is it possible for God to cover it up? And David himself not suffer the punishment that he has just pronounced is deserved on such a man. How is it possible for David to destroy a marriage, to destroy a family and a life, and to stand before God on the last day with no case to answer, for God to deliberately choose to forget those events? I mean, if you were Uriah's mother or father, and you heard those words, wouldn't you be scandalized for God to look at a murderer and say, your sin has been taken away. Does this really matter to God? Well, look again at the final part of the passage. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. God says he's taken away David's sin. But he does not say that sin does not matter. It matters so much that David's entire family, his entire kingdom has been ruptured and ruined. Even though David's sin is forgiven, there are going to be consequences he's going to have to live with for the rest of his life. Forgiveness does not remove the consequences of sin, something, by the way, that has profound practical consequences for us as Christians as we do life together. His child is going to die. Now, I have to be careful here because I think we must not understand the death of this child as an atonement or substitute for David's sin. But look at verse 14. Because David has given the enemies of God reason to scorn the Lord, the death of this son will pronounce something. It will proclaim something to the world of how seriously God takes sin. This son, the son of David's adultery, will die as a way of showing that God is in control, that he's not going to allow David's sin to determine the future. That it will not be this son who inherits the kingdom, but a son of God's own choosing. So I don't think we should see this as this son dying instead of David. No, no. All this does is tell us that sin matters to God. And what it tells us, of course, is to look for another son, another son of David, a son who is to come. That son, Simon mentioned, that God is pleased with. Now, he is the son who will die as a substitute and atonement for David so that God can say, I have taken your sins away. And indeed, He will die for the sins of the whole world. And so David can write in Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man or woman whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Well, let's conclude very briefly. I suggested at the start that the most liberating truth about the Christian life is that our sins have been forgiven. And if you're a Christian this morning, you know this. And even if you've come to church for the first time this morning, now you know this. But sometimes coming to see that truth and believe it wholeheartedly can be a hard 
and painful journey. Either because we underestimate the seriousness of sin and how much it costs God to forgive, or because we actually underestimate the grace of God and believe he could never forgive my sin. And the solution to both errors is to come and stand before the cross of Christ. Because as we look at the cross of Christ, we see just how terrible and deadly our sin is. We are reminded that we have despised God. That we deserve the death sentence. That we should never take our sin lightly. That we should never say with the German poet, of course, God will forgive, it's his job. God doesn't need to forgive you. And forgiving him cost him everything. But as we stand at the foot of the cross, we see something else at the same time. We see that God's grace is even greater than our sin. We see that we can turn to the very one we've offended and say with David, I've sinned against the Lord. Because of his love and compassion, we can see in the cross that God forgives and he forgives justly. So the moral order of the universe is upheld. We have a God we can trust to bring justice and to forgive. And we can live in the liberty of his grace. No longer needing to run and hide, but to run to him. And we can open our heart to the sharp word of the gospel and revel in his amazing grace. So let's do that now. Let's pray together. I'm going to read a couple of... uh, Verses, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Isaiah 66, verse 2. God says, This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And then Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd help us not to harden our hearts to your word and perish, but enable us to open our hearts to your gracious word And to turn away from sin, to put our trust wholly in Jesus and his blood for our forgiveness, so that we might be safe in him before the coming judgment. We know our sin is always before us, but in your grace you choose not to remember it. You've thrown it into the sea, you've put it behind your back, you've nailed it to the cross. It's gone forever. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.